0: Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will turn to what is today the northern part of Vietnam in the 10th century AD. At the time, it began to make steps towards independence from China, the empire that had ruled it as a sort of military borderland for centuries. Din Bo Lin was able to take advantage of a weakened China and all the efforts of the leaders in the few decades prior to create an independent and lasting state. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at The Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 3, Dinbo Lin and this is The Almost Forgotten. Mm-hmm. Din Bo Lin was born in 1923 in the southern regions of what was considered Vietnam at the time, This is probably by any definition North Vietnam, but at that time, it was the southern portion of An Nam, also known as the Jinghai Military Command, a Chinese protectorate. His father was probably the governor of a small portion of this region to the south. His mother was one of the governor's concubines. The Tang Dynasty of China started the century as one of the biggest empires in the world. And Annam was just another region that they ruled, although neither of those things would last long. To the south of Annam, in the southern coastal region of today's Vietnam, the Cham people ruled a small but strong kingdom. To their west, the Khmer Empire was powerful and growing, ruling most of the lands east of the Mon states and the burgeoning Pagan Kingdom in today's Myanmar. To their south, Srivijaya ruled over a significant area on the southern Malay Peninsula and the islands of Sumatra and Java. Further west, India had several competing states, but the three largest were the Pallas dynasty in the northeast, the Gujara Pratiharas in the north and west, and the Rashtrakuta dynasty in the southwest. Continuing west, the Safarids, Samanids, and Buyids, among others, came to power as the native Persians and Turco-Persians began to take charge after the Arab-Muslim conquest of a few centuries prior. The Abbasid Caliphate technically ruled over most of Mesopotamia, although it was beginning to fade and was beginning to be dominated by its once-subject kingdoms. The Fatimids were beginning to emerge as the leading power in Egypt and North Africa, and would have possessions as far as Morocco midway through the century. Further south, the Ghana Empire was probably in its zenith in western sub-Saharan Africa, while the once powerful kingdom of Aksum in eastern Africa was in significant decline. On the other side of the Fatimids sat the Byzantines. In the first quarter of the century, they were preoccupied with Bulgaria, and most of the century was a decline phase for the Eastern Romans, at least until Basil II took the throne in 976. Besides the aforementioned Bulgars to their north, the Magyars recently found their forever home in the Pannonian Plains. The Kingdom of Hungary would be established in the year 1000. The steppe from whence they came was ruled mostly by Turks, and the Khazar Khanate, which had been a power in the western steppe, was in full-on collapse thanks in no small part to the rise in power of the Kievan Rus under Sviatoslav and his son Vladimir the Great. West of this, Poland coalesced into a large duchy that was technically a vassal to the Holy Roman Empire, although it was essentially independent and would soon be acknowledged as a kingdom. Charlemagne's Carolingian Empire had collapsed, and the German duchies of East Francia started the century as relatively independent states. However, by the middle of the century, Otto I, Season 1, Episode 6, united the German duchies, as well as Lombardy in northern Italy, into the Holy Roman Empire. The Carolingian descendant kingdom of Lotharingia was reduced to a French duchy at the dawn of the century, And the Kingdom of West Francia was also ruled by Carolingians until they made way for the Capetian dynasty in 986. Spain was divided between León and smaller kingdoms in the north, and the Emirate of Cordoba in the south. The century-long process of uniting the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms led to the establishment of the Kingdom of England under Ethelstan, the grandson of Alfred the Great, in 927. By the middle of the century, Eric Bloodaxe had been expelled from Northumbria, but by the end of the century, Vikings had returned. The Norsemen would also make their way across the Atlantic before the end of the century, although the big story in northern North America was the formation of the Mississippian culture. Change rocked Mesoamerica as well this century, which saw the rise of the Toltec Empire in Mexico and the collapse of the classical Maya civilization. And this wasn't the only civilization which saw a collapse. Back in East Asia, the second half of the 9th century was not particularly kind to the Tang Dynasty of China. A decade of rebellion, including the sacking of the capital and a breakdown of central authority, put borderlands such as Annam pretty low on a list of some very important priorities. By 905 AD, it seems the military governors, and several were appointed over the previous few years, were never able to make their way down to Dai La, the capital of the Jinghai military command. But that year, a local man became Jiedushi, or military governor of Annam. His name was Kuk Tuadu, a member of a powerful family in the Jiao region, and he seems to have come to power pretty peacefully. The histories record him as a kindly popular leader, there may have been a power vacuum, and the local landed gentry wanted someone in charge, so they were like, hmm, everybody likes Kuktu Adu. The clan is well-respected. Just let him do it. The lack of resistance to this appointment, as well as the fact that he only claimed the title of Jidushi as a representative for the Tang Emperor, made it easy for a preoccupied China to just go with it. They acknowledged his position, again, as the governor, not as some independent leader, because they had tried to send someone and couldn't get it done. He said he was their man, not his own, so they realized it was probably the best option. They really didn't have a choice. Kuk adu only lived another year or so, he was elderly, and when he died in 907, he was succeeded by his son, Kukoa. As this was happening, the Tang dynasty was finally ending. It was succeeded not by one dynasty, but by a fractious period of Chinese history known as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms era. As China fell apart, the Cook family continued to rule Annam as a Chinese province. But make no mistake, while they claimed subservience to their Chinese overlords, they weren't asking them for advice. This was a time when Vietnam was really starting on its road to independence. Kukhoa's son, Kuk Tuomi, took over for him when he died, and this new governor continued to play the role of loyal subject. He worked hard to keep a strong relationship with the later Liang dynasty, which ruled from Kaifeng and was technically the successor to the Tang. But the later Liang didn't hold most of China, and so Annam wasn't secure just by gaining their friendship. Kuk Tuomi worked to build alliances with the other kingdoms of the fractured region. His ally, Wang Shanji, who ruled the Kingdom of Min, centered on the city of Fuzhou up the coast, helped keep Annam's enemies in check. However, soon after Wang Shanji died, the Southern Han Dynasty, which ruled over Guangzhou, which used to be known as Canton, saw their opportunity. As Min fell into civil war and kingdoms to their north fought over supremacy there, their southern neighbor, the Southern Han, didn't march in. Rather, they let the civil war play out there and marched south to Annam. And when they arrived, there was no fight. They entered the capital of Dai La with basically no resistance, and Kuk tu Ami was all, hey, so glad you guys could make it, I've been keeping the seat warm for you. He was taken prisoner and marched to Guangzhou, where he submitted to the southern Han ruler, but it seems he was spared to live out his days peacefully. Keith Weller Taylor, in his book The Birth of Vietnam, sums up this period by writing The Cook family gave the Vietnamese a half century of prosperity and tranquility. Culturally, the Vietnamese enjoyed a revival of Tang civilization. Buddhism and Taoism flourished, as did classical studies. Yet, beneath the surface, important changes were taking place. Independence didn't come politically, and culturally, China was still a massive influence, but without Chinese officials coming in, and the sort of deference and obedience given to the behavior and habits of these officials, local customs also began to take hold among the elite. Despite the southern Han presence up in Dai La, the southern part of what we think of today as the northern half of Vietnam, was never really ruled by them. Duong Dinh Yi a general under the Kuk clan, still held power in the south. He was given a title by the Southern Han who were content to let him rule in their name, but he wasn't quite as content with them, at least not with their presence right there. So he raised an army and marched north to take Dai La. The Southern Han retaliated by sending their own army to counter this, but by the time it got there, he had already occupied the regional capital the Chinese army was defeated, and the Southern Han cut their losses, naming Duong as their governor of Annam. There's really no historical record from his time as Jai Dushi, but after six years in charge, he was assassinated by a low-ranking officer who wanted to bring Southern Han direct rule back to Annam. Because Duong Dunyi was not a Chinese sycophant, it's likely that during his time in charge, he further pushed Chinese culture out and made the region, well, more Vietnamese. A new identity was emerging, and he was embracing it. This probably helped get him assassinated. One of his generals, though, would get revenge. This general, Ngo Kuyen, raised an army in the south, and again, this is the south of Vietnam, not the Cham regions. So we're talking north of the Ma River, the region around the city of Hoa Lu. Ngo was in charge of Ai province, just north of the Ma River, which was Duong's birthplace, so he was trusted by the now-dead leader, and he had already proven his skill in battle. He quickly was able to march north and kill the usurper, but not before the southern Han began to make moves to aid their erstwhile ally. The southern Han emperor named his son Liu Hongkao as the new Jai Dushi, and also named him King of jiao which was another name for An Nam, or at least part of An Nam. The plan was to head to the Bak dang River, a northern tributary of the Red River, and sail up it into the Annam heartland. This would be followed by the Emperor himself leading another force over land. But this was all foreseen by No Qyen. Or perhaps it was actually intelligence that was intercepted, because he made a decisive move to counter the invasion. He filled the riverbed with poles and put iron tips on them. When the Chinese fleet arrived in the fall of 938, the trap was hidden by the water in high tide. No and his shallow-bottomed boats feigned a retreat against the larger Chinese craft. They then turned around to attack, and as the tide went out, the Chinese were stuck, with many ships impaled on the spikes. About half of the 20,000 men the Southern Han had sent were killed, including Liu Hongkao, the new jidushi and king of Zhaoji. Routed, the remaining retreated, and the emperor of the Southern Han took his land-based force and returned to Guangzhou. Annam was, in effect, independent, and there was really nothing the Chinese could do about it—at least not at that moment. So, with no impending threat. Ngo Yen declared himself king of an independent state. He moved the capital from the Chinese regional center of Dai Lao to Ko Loa, an ancient Vietnamese city and one-time capital. They were able to break from China, but Ngo only lived for six more years, and his death brought about a period of anarchy. He had brought them along on the road to a truly independent kingdom, but Ngo's victory didn't mean they were strong enough to defy more invasions if China returned, at least not yet. So they still pretended to play the part of subservient governors, even after fighting off that attacking army, to allow China to save enough face to not feel the need to act. Despite Ngo Kuyen's impressive achievements, he did not leave a united Vietnam upon his death. He had more than one son, and while they may not have fought each other for supremacy, Another man jumped into the conversation when Duong Dunyi's son claimed the throne. Duong Tam Ka called himself the King of Peace, although Nyo's sons were smart enough to flee rather than stick around and find out if he'd stick to the nickname. The country moved into a period of near-anarchy, although Duong Tam Ka was nominally the most powerful man. He dealt with rebellions and insurrections, he even officially adopted one of Nyo Kuyen's sons as his heir who soon deposed him, which seems kind of ungrateful, except, you know, Duong had deposed the Nho heir first, so anyway, by 950, Nho Xuan Văn, one of Nho Quyn's sons, was in charge, although we don't actually know much of what happened up until his death in 963. What we can surmise, though, by the state of Vietnam immediately after his death, is that he didn't do too well keeping power centralized. First of all, he died trying to put down a rebellion, shot with a crossbow bolt while watching a battle from a river. But secondly, soon after his death, we enter what is known as the Twelve Warlords period. As you can imagine, there was little central authority as various strongmen fought each other for supremacy. And many don't mark the beginning of the Twelve Warlords period at the death of Nyoksuan Anvan, but rather in 944 when No ku died. Of course, there were 12 warlords who ruled various territories throughout the country. At least there were 12 named. There were certainly more strongmen ruling smaller regions. A good number of these were just, you know, bandits that set up shop in some county far from the capital. And there were several sons of Nyo Kuyen, and several officials in the Nyo court who ended up as warlords. Din Bo Lin, however, was not on this list of warlords, but he was a powerful man, the son of a governor in one of the southern regions who probably inherited the role. He was born in or very close to Hoalu, the capital of the Hoan region, between the Red and Ma rivers. There are all sorts of legends about Din's childhood, like he organized the village youths into some sort of small gang that would fight play battles against other villages and always, always win. But these are likely legends even the one about his mom being so impressed with his generalship that she held a banquet in his honor. But there may be some truth to the story that he fought his uncle for supremacy at one point, and after initial setbacks, came out victorious. What we do know is that when his father died, and we're not sure when that was, but when his father died, Din Bo Lin became the new governor of the southern expanses of Hoan. Hoalu, the capital, sits on the southernmost major tributary of the Red River, giving Dinbolin command of the southern plains of this massive delta. It also gave him control of the route south into the reaches beyond the Red River Delta and towards Cham territory. He may have been in charge by 951, when it seems the Neo brothers attempted to invade his region and take Ho'alu. Din sent his son to negotiate, or perhaps as a hostage to ensure his allegiance to the Nyo family. The story goes that they responded by marching to Hoa and tying the son up and threatening to kill him outside the city if Din didn't surrender. Din Bolin shot a few arrows in his son's general direction and said, how can a great man compromise a great affair simply because of his son? The Nyo brothers gave up the siege, and Din's son escaped. This still seems like we are in legend territory here, but again, we can surmise that the Ngo dynasty, weakened as they were, tried to wrest Hoan from Din, but were unable to do so. He was a brave general, as we'll see, but Din's first real move in the reconsolidation of Vietnam may have been his most important. He made an alliance with a man named Tron Lam. Tron was one of the twelve warlords, and he ruled the territory to the northeast of Din, an underdeveloped coastal area. It was probably marshy enough that invasion was unlikely, so he was in a defensible position. And Tron controlled an important port, Bohai, which may have held much of the region's southern-facing sea trade. Tron Lamb, for his part, was probably not very young and didn't have an heir. Din Bolin, showing his wisdom and not putting pride ahead of a great opportunity, essentially came to Tron as a suppliant. That is, he acknowledged Tron's power above his own, and perhaps there were some negotiations there, but the upshot was that Tron saw an opportunity as well. Tron adopted Din as his son and heir, essentially uniting their two provinces. Ho'alu was a southern center of administrative and political activity, so the alliance held benefits for Tron as well. As K.W. Taylor writes, quote, Lamb eventually entrusted Bolin with his army. Lam financed Bolin's ambitions, and Bolin guaranteed the security of Lam's market." Unquote. Of course, this unity set off alarm bells for the other warlords. Pham Bak Ho, a former general of Ku Yin, ruled Dang Chao, a small region just upriver from Tron's power base. Pham was probably outnumbered and had a choice of either allying with the other warlords or with Din and Tron but Fam city was highly dependent on Tron's port, so rather than put up any sort of fight, he just went ahead and submitted to Din's army. Now, it's possible he did this under actual physical threat. We don't know if Din marched an army up or if Fam just popped in to bend the knee, but either way, it was a relatively good deal for the warlord. He became the commander of Din's bodyguard, and his small territory was integrated into Din's. Din was now suddenly the leader of a formidable state, at least compared with most of the other warlords. So, he turned his attention to the rest of the Red River Plain. With a large army, one record has it at 30,000, comprised of men from his southern reaches as well as Tron's and Fam's forces, he began his war to consolidate the country. The Nyo clan was still a threat, but they were weakened by years of fighting. They gathered a relatively small army and marched in what may have been an attempt to surprise Din, but they were quickly repulsed by a local force before ever reaching him. Din Bolin, however, heard of the incident and quickly gathered his army and marched out to take advantage of their sorry state. It didn't take long for him to defeat them, and he then marched against the remaining warlords. He seemed to be able to pick off most of the generals individually, pulling the lands on the northern and southern borders into his growing kingdom relatively quickly it probably only took about two years from the start of his major campaigns until he was alone on the mountaintop. According to Taylor, quote, With these victories, all major centers of resistance to Bolin were broken. Conditions were far from settled, however, for the effects of two decades of anarchy could not be erased at once. Bolin had to build his kingdom from the ground up, unquote. Now ruling most of the lands of Annam, He didn't set himself up in the Chinese regional capital of Dai La, today's Hanoi, or even Koloa, the ancient capital of previous kingdoms. Rather, he used his power base at Hoa Lu as the new capital. Now, there was certainly familiarity there, and he probably felt he could trust most of the people in the palace. But strategically, it was a safer location. Hoa Lu was easily defendable, sitting in a valley which was accessible through only a few mountain passes. In other words, choke points needing to be transited by any invading armies. And considering the existential fear was the Chinese to the north, it also allowed for easy and rapid reinforcement from the southern Red River Plains, where Din Bolin originated. This also kept the capital away from the northern plains of Annam, with its heavy Chinese influence. The northern side of the Red River was where most of the Chinese administrators would live, And that meant all those nobles who either were of Chinese ethnicity or were native but closely allied with the Chinese also lived there. The South probably just felt a little safer. Din Bo Lin, in his consolidation process, also tried to consolidate the leading clans, marrying one of the leading Nyo family women and making her a queen. He also had his daughter married to Nyo Nat Khan, one of the remaining Nyo men of power. But this man eventually fled to Cham territory. Din Bo Lin named himself king, and he gave his son, Din Lien the title of Jiedushi, the governor of An Nam, so while he was creating a kingdom, he was still deferential to the southern Han, who acknowledged the title. This probably kept China from mounting an immediate invasion with the ousting of their allies, allowing them to chalk it up to internal squabbles in one of their military marches, which basically ended with status quo, although some of the names had changed. Not for long, though, as he soon took the title of emperor. This was probably to establish his authority at home, to tell everyone there just who was the boss, in case they forgot. But it was also a slap in the face to China. According to China, there was only one emperor. So, while he mollified China when he talked to them, he eventually felt secure enough to send strong messages that they were no longer in charge there, and he didn't use the Chinese name for his country anymore. He wasn't the emperor of An Nam or Jinghai, the Chinese imperial province. He was the emperor of the Viet people. So he called his empire Dai Co Viet. Dai means great in Vietnamese. Co means great in Chinese. So he was creating the Great Viet Empire. Eventually, this name was shortened to simply Dai Viet. This was a variation of the name of the empire started by the Chinese expansion in the 2nd century BC, Nam Viet, or the Southern Viet Empire, which of course is just a variation of what the country is called today. In the year 970, Din Bo Lin issued a decree that he was opening his reign of great peace. Taylor suggests this formal declaration of the beginning of his reign, several years after proclaiming himself emperor, suggests He spent the intervening years pacifying his lands. Din was also married to five empresses, which was not a Chinese-influenced sort of polygamy. In China, the emperor had a multitude of concubines, but there was only one empress. Din followed a more regional custom, using marriages and subsequent elevation of the women to the exalted level of empress to win and keep alliances. In this way, he was not unique to the broader region, as the Khmer culture, dominant at the time in Southeast Asia, did the same thing. This suggests that maybe China wasn't the only place influencing Vietnam. The world, of course, did not sit still as he united his new empire, least of all in China. In 960, the later Zhao, the imperial dynasty, was overthrown by a new dynasty, the Song. It took about a decade, but in 971, the Song conquered the southern Han, bringing Guangzhou and the nearest major Chinese center of power to Daiko Viet into its orbit. It was only a matter of time before the Song would finish their reunification of China and then turn their forces to pulling in those military marches on the edges of the empire. Din Bo Lin sent envoys to the Song in 973, including his son Din Lien, the Jai Dushi of the Annam territory to offer his submission. The Song, still preoccupied with their reunification, acknowledged Din Lian's title, and by proxy, Din Bo Lin's authority. This acknowledgement included an edict which noted just how far away the Jinghai military district was, and that since Din Lian, along with his father, pacified the region after a period of anarchy and ruled in the name of the great emperor of China, that they were okay with it. For the moment, at least. They gave Din Lian some additional titles that were probably more ceremonial than anything else, but they also named him as Duke, which carried some additional authority. Relations were maintained, and eventually Din Bo Lin was acknowledged as well, given the title of the King of Zhaoji Prefecture. This was all done in exchange for loyalty and tribute. Din was essentially allowing himself to be thought of as a vassal, because he knew he could get away with it by paying China off. And remaining independent otherwise. And China thought of everyone who gave them tribute as a vassal of sorts, but there are plenty of instances of so called vassal states sending tribute, letting China call them a vassal, and then being left to do whatever they wanted to on their own. It seems that this was one of those cases. But Din Bolin's title was new, and it didn't have any of the traditional strings of ruling in China's name attached to it. Din Lian had to send gifts and tribute on certain occasions but Din Bo Lin, who got to be called the king of Zhao Prefecture, did not. The Song Empire called the Dai Viet Emperors by this title for the next two centuries, when they further modified the title, but kept the same intent. This was a lasting legacy, highlighting the independence of Vietnam from China. It doesn't mean that China wouldn't ever attack. Certainly different kingdoms and empires attack each other and even try to conquer each other and the Dai Viet reformed its army under Din Bo Lin because they knew that China would always be a threat. But China was recognizing that Vietnam was its own kingdom, in their eyes a somewhat subordinate and certainly less important kingdom, but a kingdom nonetheless. In 978, though, despite all the work his eldest son Din Lian had done to help him establish his empire and establish their footing with China, Din Bo Lin named an infant son as his heir. He wasn't terribly old, he was in his mid fifties, so it's difficult to simply chalk this move up to senility or something similar. Taylor points out that he was a rustic and may have fallen to courtly influences that he wasn't able to defend against due to his upbringing. But even this seems odd considering just how successful he was with politics and diplomacy. Whatever the reason he had for naming a new successor, the old one was not happy. He had an assassin come, not for his father. But for the baby in 979. But, as a reflection of the court intrigues from which this whole incident probably resulted, Din Lien was soon assassinated himself, and then so was Din Bolin. Din Bolin was killed by a junior officer, a lower ranking nobleman, in the courtyard of the palace after some sort of banquet. This man tried to hide on the roof of the palace, but was caught after spending a few days up there and was quickly executed. A civil war followed Din Bolin's death, and a very young son became emperor, nominally. But power rested in the hands of Li Hoan, the commander of Din Bolin's army. First, he faced invasion from the south, as the Cham Kingdom attacked, with one of the Nyo princes instigating and leading the way. Weather stopped their invasion, and an eventual counterattack by the Dai Viet secured their south. But the Song Empire saw their opportunity to reclaim their military district with Din Bolin's death, and they invaded. Despite their initial successes, Li Hoan was able to drive them back, and they retreated to China. This helped guarantee Dai Viet's independence for some time once again, and it also helped Li Hoan guarantee his own power base. He seized the throne, although he spared the young emperor, making him a commanding member of his army. When Li Hoan died in the year 1005, his sons fought for the throne, but four years later, a new dynasty had emerged. Li Kong Yuan, a non-noble who had risen the ranks to a high-level military commander, enjoyed the backing of the religious authorities and became the new emperor. His dynasty lasted two centuries, and the Dai Viet kingdom that Din Bolin had started lasted centuries beyond. A chronicler in the 13th century was quoted by Taylor Showing how well Din Bolin was regarded, even 300 years later, when he wrote that he, quote, at a time when our land of Viet was masterless, founded the kingdom, built a capital, changed his title to emperor, appointed all the officials, established the six armies, almost completely put in order the laws and administration, unquote. Din Bolin took a nation that had been dependent on Chinese rule. Even his predecessors dared not call themselves anything more than governors, and installed a sense of independence in them, a sense that they were their own people and should act accordingly. He called himself king and got the Chinese to acknowledge this title, leading to a truly independent Vietnam, which lasted for centuries. For the next two episodes, we'll start by moving forward about a century and west to the border of Europe and Asia, where a king helped a tiny kingdom unite a region, and a successor queen took it to the height of its power. Thanks for listening.